0: Uh, Heavenly Father, thanks for this word that you speak to us. Uh, thanks that you, as you speak, you show us your Son. Uh, you show us uh, the, what he went through, uh, who he is, what he does now, and the nature of the days we live in. Uh, please open our eyes to it. In Jesus, Amen. Okay, so just read chapter 13 of Mark. Uh, it's unusual language, isn't it? It's kind of, um, yeah, those, yeah, those pictures that kind of blend into one another. I think actually what's going on is Jesus is remixing Old Testament images and language. He takes language from the Old Testament, uh, pictures from the Old Testament to describe, well, what's he describing? Uh, he builds a new picture. It's kind of, what is it about, though, is the question. How is it relevant to us? I think when you see I think when you can say who goes through the tribulation and when you can say who the Son of Man comes to, you'll be able to see what it's about and how it's relevant. Who goes through the tribulation, who the Son comes to. Now the best way I could think about to show you all of that is to move quickly through chapters 13 to 16 and then to come back and have another look at chapter 13. So that's the plan. Uh, the context from uh, the last, last week really is where there, there was trade and sacrifice happening in the temple, uh, which was as bad as what had happened back in Jeremiah's day when he, when he, called, uh, when he called the temple and said, it's like a den of robbers. It's not good. Uh, Jesus was rejected by the temple leaders when he called them out. But at the beginning of chapter 13, the disciples appear to be saying to him, don't worry about though being rejected by those guys. Look at the temple. It's solid. It will last. Jesus says in response 13 verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, And then later outside Jerusalem, uh, looking back at the temple, which is already 50 years into a major restoration project, they look at it, they see how impressive it is, and a few disciples ask Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They ask when, but Jesus doesn't answer when. Verse 5, he gives a short list of things which are unreliable guides to when. People aiming aiming to lead others astray. Uh, Some even claiming to be him. Uh, An an unreliable guide. Nations in conflict, kingdoms at war, earthquakes, famines. None of those are good guides to when. Verse 9, they are the beginnings of the birth pains. But they're not the birth. Uh, history is littered with conflict and war and earthquake and famine. There's always someone fighting someone else somewhere. Or about to. Rumors. Natural disaster in one place or another. They're always happening. Conflicts, wars, earthquakes, famines. They're not clues to when the end will come. They're just the beginning of the birth pains. And who knows how long the labor will last, is Jesus' point. They're not the end, but they're a reminder that the end will come. The end is certain. Human conflict, natural disaster tell us that the world is not yet right. There's not yet peace. The world is not yet restored. God will set it straight. That day is coming. But the human conflict, natural disaster, are reminders it's not yet right. So Jesus avoiding asking the question about when in verses nine to thirteen. really then he talks about how to wait, be in guard, expect opposition, bear witness. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He says, he says the Spirit will enable their testimony. It'll be a terrible time of opposition but he who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end or even the one who endures to their end will be saved to their death. Human conflict, natural disaster, unreliable guides to when, each individual must endure to their end. Jesus hasn't yet said anything about when. Then verse 14, but... When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, then. Now, God showed prophets his plan. And I think as we think about this, we need to be aware of this aspect of how God spoke. They would look to the future, kind of like looking and seeing a mountain out ahead. God would say, this is what's going to happen. And then it would it'd be what would, what would happen as time moved along. Within the timeline of the Bible, and with the benefit of hindsight, we often see multiple fulfillments. There are layers of fulfillment, where the prophet speaks and describes as if one thing is going to happen, but then there's a near fulfillment, a further fulfillment, a final fulfillment, as time rolls out. In verse 14, that phrase, the abomination of desolation, comes from Daniel chapter 14, verse 11. Uh, And actually looking through history uh, from the time that Jesus wrote, there had already been desolating and destructive sacrilege. Violation of the temple. Uh, Soon after Daniel spoke, there was uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, came and destroyed the temple. Uh, Centuries later, it was Antiochus Epiphanes who came and sacrificed in the temple as as a pagan. Jesus anticipates another fulfillment. Another abomination of desolation. When they see it, verse 14, they are to react. They are to flee urgently, without going back, knowing how horrific it will be when it comes. Because, verse, verse 19, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This sort of tribulation and suffering and distress which if it went on for too long, no human would be saved. Verse 24, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and and the moon will not give its light and the stars will, will be falling from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. It all flows forward from the abomination of desolation. One thing implies the next. Then Jesus said, verse 30, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be sure, this is what's going to happen. When they asked, Jesus says there are signs to see, but no one knows them. Not the angels, not the Son, only the Father. Then over and over Jesus says, be ready. Look at verse 33. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, uh, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The thing is, as you read on, you see that they didn't. They didn't stay awake. Chapter 14 mentions Passover. Uh, The plot to kill Jesus uh, after it. Uh, his death coming. Uh, lots of pointers to it. Verse 8, he's anointed beforehand for his burial. Chapter 14, verse 10, Judas betray, agrees to betray Jesus to his death. Verse 21, the Son of Man goes as it is written. He's talked about how he, how, what he's come for. Verse 24 to 25, uh, he reinterprets the Passover to point to his death. The bread and wine point to his body and his blood poured out as a ransom for many. He goes to death. But he also says he will enjoy a messianic banquet in the new age in the kingdom of of heaven, kingdom of God. He will drink again of the, the fruit of the vine. That's evening. About midnight, they go out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, he says, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He, the shepherd, will be struck by God, and his sheep will be scattered. God the Father will actively strike his son, actively strike his beloved son. Yet beyond his death raised up, he will go ahead of them into Galilee. He spends those midnight hours praying. Verse 33, greatly distressed and troubled, his soul very sorrowful, asking his father to take the cup of his wrath from him, but submitting to his father's will. Through it he (laughs) he keeps telling his disciples again, stay awake. But they don't. They don't stay awake, and then the betrayer comes, and Jesus is arrested, and his disciples flee. They don't stay. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes put Jesus on trial. Uh, verse 58, his own death and resurrection. <laughs> it, it, it is the closest thing we've heard to what they accuse him for of in this trial. When they say Jesus has been saying that he will destroy the temple and will made with hands. And in three days he will build another, not made by hands. Verse 61, the priest asks, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. They all think blasphemy, and ironically, they mock Jesus. They invite him to prophesy in the moment that they do exactly what he prophesied they would do. And moments before we hear about Peter doing exactly what Jesus prophesied that Peter would do, by the time the rooster crows peter has denied jesus 3 times midnight rooster crow chapter 15 verse 16 in the morning at the third hour 9 a.m. jesus was crucified verse 33 3 sorry verse 33 and it's 3 hours later at midday the sixth hour that at midday there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour 3 p m and at the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice eloi eloi lama sabachthani which means my god my god why have you forsaken me 37 jesus utters a loud cry breathes his last 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as Jesus dies with no follower near. A Roman centurion is left to say, truly, this man was the Son of God. The women who followed, they're looking on from a distance. His disciples are scattered. But on the third day, Jesus is raised just as he said. Chapter 16, the women enter the tomb. They find a young man dressed in a white robe. Verse 6, he says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They flee. They're they're, they're trembling, they're astonished, they're afraid, and they say nothing to anyone. Verse 8. But we know what comes next. We know what has to come next. Because we heard Jesus say it in chapter 13. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Now, I... I mentioned the layered fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy earlier, those mountains stacking behind each other. Partly because that's what you just keep seeing as you read the scriptures, but partly because that's also what we see specifically happening in chapter 13. So let's go back there. Because looking back from the end of Mark, uh, at chapter 13, we actually see that midnight, then rooster crowing, then morning, then has countdown. And the disciples didn't stay awake. I'm going to argue, they did see the abomination of desolation. They did see the tribulation. And they will soon see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. let's look again at chapter 13. I'll show you what I mean. Sorry? Hmm? Ah, the computer's restarted. Right, take issue. Where was I? Oh, yes. Yeah, so abomination of desolation. They saw it. The, tri- the tribulation. They saw. They're going to see. are going to see the Son of Man coming with glory, great power and glory. So look again at chapter 13, uh, and I'll show, I'll show you how, how, that, how that's going on. A lot of what, we've been, what we saw in chapter 13 is actually talking about the other chapters we, we looked at. It's talking about Jesus suffering, death, resurrection, ascension. On the way through, uh, Mark mentioned that, that testimony about the temple being destroyed and built again in three days to help us see what's going on. Because he, he's shown us now Jesus' body destroyed and rebuilt in three days. So it sends us back to the violation of the stone temple uh, by making it a marketplace. uh, That went up a step when the leaders rejected God's beloved son. When they arrested him, when they put him on trial, when they condemned him to death, when they handed him over to the Gentiles to be crucified. God's own son suffered under God's curse. That's the abomination of desolation far worse than some stone temple destroyed or desecrated. The body of the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of the temple, destroyed and rebuilt. The death by crucifixion of God's beloved son is the most abominable event of human history. It's the tribulation. Chapter 13, verse 19. It is suffering far worse than there has been since the beginning when God created the world. Suffering which will never be equals. God's son suffering what we deserve. God himself striking his beloved son with the curse that we deserve. God himself striking his beloved son, our shepherd, with our punishments that we might be spared. In that moment, well, the Jerusalem temple ceased to be the place where sacrifice is offered, ceased to be the place where people draw near to God. In that instant, it was superseded and replaced with the heavenly tabernacle that we read about in Hebrews last year. The temple torn in two from top to bottom is often spoken about as if, hey, look, we now have access into the most holy place. I think that's wrong. I'm convinced that it's a picture. It's, describing the first, it's better described as the first step of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. A destruction that rattled out in some senses physically in A.D. 70 when uh, the, the temple was destroyed. See, in Hebrews chapter 10, the most holy place has a curtain which we get to go through. The heavenly most holy place, the place where God dwells himself, has a curtain which we get to go through. And that curtain is the body of the Lord Jesus, his flesh. Mark's getting at the same idea. He's showing us uh, as the curtain of the physical temple is destroyed, the curtain which is the flesh of the Lord Jesus is destroyed on Good Friday and raised up on Easter Sunday. The curtain torn in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem temple, that temple superseded, irrelevant, irrelevant. People no longer draw near to God through that curtain. Now the way is open to draw near to God through the curtain which is Christ's body, his flesh given and raised up. And he's raised to rule. He rules now at his father's right hand. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 26, really, I, I think it's the key that helps us understand verse thir- chapter 13. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, we need to look carefully at this passage that Jesus is, is hinting at. Because if we don't, we'll miss the point that he's, that he's making. We'll, we'll think primarily of him coming towards us. When Have a look at Daniel chapter 7. Uh, should be a slide. Right? Great. Then chapter 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. God the Ancient of Days is on his throne and the Son of Man comes to him. Comes to him and is given great power and glory. The honor of sitting at the right hand of God. The power and authority to rule all people everywhere eternally. Jesus here, he's talking about when he comes to God when he comes to God and is given the royal stamp of approval, when he's given rule over all things, when will that be? Well, it's already happened. His resurrection was God's stamp of approval. Beyond the end of Mark's gospel, but the inevitable beyond is his return to his father's right hand to rule over all things. Jesus is already at the right hand of God the Father, already ruling over all things. So verse 27 of chapter 13, it is from his throne that the Son of Man sends out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. Again, the primary fulfillment here is of Jesus gathering his elect as his gospel is preached among all nations. It's what he's been doing since he came to his throne. What he will continue to do until the future day when he returns. He's sending out his messengers to declare his gospel. To save more and more. So a lot of chapter 13 is really, it's about Jesus suffering, death, resurrection, ascension. But not all of it. Uh, there are there are layers to the fulfilment. Jesus told his disciples to be on guard, to stay awake um, as his death approached, but they didn't. That, that's done. That, that, that's completed. But these warnings and exhortations weren't just for the brief time between when he spoke and when he died. They speak to life this side of the son being given. They they speak to life, this side of the sun, giving his life as a ransom for many. They speak to life as he rules in great power and glory. Verses 5 to 13, I think, actually focus on life while we wait. The tribulation in verses 14 to 23, it layers together in the foreground, the, the mountain which is Jesus going to his death for us and in our place. Not suffering worse than any, and then in behind it another mountain of God's people caught up in the opposition that there is against Jesus. Human complex natural disasters just as unreliable guides to the end. They'll continue until Christ sets all things straight. Meanwhile, Christ's followers well, we need to stay on guard. Christ's people should expect to be caught up in the world's hostility towards Christ and his gospel. So Jesus says, expect opposition. Verse 9, chapter 13, verse 9, delivered over, beaten. Verse 11, put on trial. Verse 12, opposed by family members, even delivered to death. Verse 13, hated for his name. When you're public about following Jesus, you can expect to be opposed you can expect how people feel towards you as they feel towards the idea of Jesus ruling them. But if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Until Jesus comes again, we should expect false guides, leaders and teachers who say, "This is how you endure." but whose direction is away from Christ and away from his gospel. Don't follow them. Jesus warns about this twice. Chapter 13, verse 5. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 22. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Jesus and his apostles, they're unembarrassed about calling out false teaching because genuine trust in false beliefs, does not save. Genuine trust in false beliefs does not save. Now, some lies are obvious; others take longer to come to light. Some falsehood is subtle enough at its edges to attract even those who genuinely know Jesus. So Jesus warns: Don't follow false guides. It's arrogant to think you could never be misled. It's arrogant to think everyone is right. Everyone has their own truth. It's arrogant to think that every leader who claims to be Christian can be trusted. That every person who claims to know Jesus as Christ actually knows him. It's arrogant because it implies you know better than Jesus. He warns false guides will come. He urges care about who you hear, and who you follow. The best defence is knowing the truth. A knockoff is hard to recognise until you see it beside the original. seems beside my board games when I wrote, the, I, wrote I thought it was. Preparing to speak about this, I was thinking a knockoff board game is hard to recognize until you see it beside the original. Then it's obvious. You can see the cardstock quality isn't right. The colors just aren't right just when you put it beside the original. The fake is obviously fake when it's beside the authentic. That's why we invest, and that's why we've got to keep investing so much of our time together in hearing God's Word read and taught. And then looking at it to make sure that we're hearing what God is actually saying. It's why I want to preach to you with your Bible open. I want you to go away and look at the Bible again later. So you can see if what I'm saying matches up with what God says in his Bible. So that you have it when you're listening to me. So that you have it when you're listening to other preachers. to say does this match up with God's words? Genuine trust in false beliefs does not save. Be on your guard against false guides and hold firmly to the truth. But don't just hold on to it, hold it out. Speak the gospel. The reason for this time uh, of experiencing opposition, of hearing false guides, really is so the gospel can be preached. The purpose of the gap between... uh, Uh, Christ coming to his Father and his coming to us is to allow the good news to go out for more and more people to trust. Verse 27, Jesus sending his messengers out to gather his people. Verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations. The purpose of these days we live in, uh, the ones between when Jesus ascended to his throne and he returns to set all things straight, the purpose of these days is Christ gathering his people. These days are for speaking the gospel through which God saves. Until Jesus returns, it's the perfect time to speak the gospel of forgiveness. It's the perfect time to start trusting. If you haven't gone all in yet, then it's time to go all in. If you have gone all in, then if you're following Jesus, well, now's the time to speak his gospel. Evangelism isn't an add-on obligation. It's not, not a sideshow. It's the main reason for these days. That's why intentionally making life overlap with people who don't yet know Jesus features so prominently around sojourn. We have a gospel to proclaim. Relationships are the soil in which the gospel grows. We mustn't let ourselves become isolated in a Christians-only bubble. I encourage that intentional overlap because when we build relationships and community together, well, we, we help one another have opportunity. We learn from one another as we take those opportunities. We help those to whom we speak hear what we say because they hear it from people who they know. It's a context for speaking the gospel, for helping one another have opportunity to speak the gospel. Uh, That said, evangelism and mission mission can be guilt-inducing words. It's hard enough to hang in there just trusting Jesus. It's why God's given us to each other. He's given us to each other to help one another stand firm in the face of opposition. To stay true when we're being lured by false guides. We love one another by being devoted to seeing one another keep in step with the Spirit and not lose heart. God's given us to each other to help one another stand firm in the face of opposition, to stay true when we're lured by false guides. This time of of this, in this time, this, our partnership is for the sake of one another, but it's also for the sake of others. This time is for the gospel going out to Brisbane and to the nations. I'm thinking both in terms of our brothers and sisters uh, in Japan and Eurasia and elsewhere who need our support and friendship and and encouragement, Our, our prayer and care and finances. But also God has given us to each other. He's placed us together to be partners in bringing the gospel to those God has placed us among. The death by crucifixion of God's beloved son is the most abominable event of human history. He went through suffering far worse than there has been since the creation of the world or ever will be. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom, he's now on his throne. He rules in power and authority over all people. He's gathering his people from among the nations and he will return to bring us home. While we wait, We can expect opposition. We must be careful not to follow false guides. We have a gospel to hold on to and a gospel to hold out as we look to God to save. Let's pray. My great God and Heavenly Father, thank you that your great plan to send your son. That he might give himself as a ransom has been fulfilled. Thank you that he did go through that dreadful, that worse than any other suffering as he faced your wrath, you coming against him that you might not come against us. Thank you that you have raised him with all power and authority and taken him to your right hand as the one who rules over all things. Thank you that you're gathering men, women, and children from among the nations as the gospel is preached. Please do use us. Please use us to keep pointing one another to that it's worthwhile to endure through opposition. To call one another back from the invitation of false guides. To point one another to gospel truth and to partner with one another in declaring the gospel to men, women, and children who so desperately need the salvation that Jesus has brought. And it's in him that we pray. Amen.